0: Part two of the island of doctor Moreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four at the schooner's rail. That night land was sighted after sundown, and the schooner hove-to. Montgomery intimated that was his destination. It was too far to see any details. It seemed to me, then, simply a low-lying patch of dim blue in the uncertain blue-grey sea. An almost vertical streak of smoke went up from it, into the sky. The captain was not on deck when it was sighted. After he had vented his wrath on me, he had staggered below, and I understood he went to sleep on the floor of his own cabin. The mate practically assumed the command. He was the gaunt, taciturn individual we had seen at the wheel. Apparently, he was in an evil temper with Montgomery. He took not the slightest notice of either of us. We dined with him in a sulky silence, after a few ineffectual efforts on my part to talk. It struck me, too, that the man regarded my companion and his animals in a singularly unfriendly manner. I found Montgomery very reticent about his purpose with these creatures, and about his destination. And though I was sensible of a growing curiosity as to both, I did not press him. We remained talking on the quarter-deck until the sky was thick with stars. Except for an occasional sound in the yellow-lit forecastle, and a movement of the animals now and then, the night was very still. The puma lay crouched together watching us with shining eyes, a black heap in the corner of its cage. Montgomery produced some cigars. He talked to me of London, in a tone of half-painful reminiscence, asking all kinds of questions about changes that had taken place. He spoke like a man who had loved his life there, and had been suddenly and irrevocably cut off from it. I gossiped as well as I could of this and that. All the time the strangeness of him— was shaping itself in my mind, and as I talked, I peered at his odd pallid face in the dim light of the binnacle lantern behind me. Then I looked out at the darkling sea, where in the dimness his little island was hidden. This man, it seemed to me, had come out of immensity merely to save my life. To-morrow he would drop over the side, and vanish again out of my existence. Even if it had been under commonplace circumstances, it would have made me a trifle thoughtful. But in the first place was the singularity of an educated man living on this unknown little island, and coupled with that extraordinary nature of his luggage. I found myself repeating the captain's question—what did he want with the beasts? Why, too, had he pretended they were not his, when I remarked about them at first? Then, again, in his personal attendance there was a bizarre quality which had impressed me profoundly. These circumstances threw a haze of mystery around the man. They laid hold of my imagination, and hampered my tongue. Towards midnight our talk of London died away, and we stood side by side, leaning over the bulwarks, and staring dreamily over the silent, starlit sea, each pursuing his own thoughts it was the atmosphere for sentiment and i began upon my gratitude if i may say it i said after a time you have saved my life chance he answered just chance i prefer to make my thanks to this accessible agent thank no one you had the need and i had the knowledge and i injected and fed you much as i might have collected a specimen i was bored and wanted something to do if i'd been jaded that day or hadn't liked your face well it's a curious question where you would have been now this damped my mood a little at any rate i began it's a chance i tell you he interrupted as everything is in a man's life only the asses won't see it why am i here now an outcast from civilization instead of being a happy man enjoying all the pleasures of london simply because 11 years ago i lost my head for 10 minutes on a foggy night he stopped yes said i that's all we relapsed into silence presently he laughed there's something in this starlight that loosens one's tongue <laughs> i'm an ass and yet Somehow I would like to tell you. Whatever you tell me, you may rely upon my keeping it to myself, if that's it.' He was on the point of beginning, and then shook his head, doubtfully. "'Don't,' said I. "'It is all the same to me. After all, it is better to keep your secret. There's nothing gained but a little relief, if I respect your confidence. If I don't, well—' He grunted undecidedly. I felt I had him at a disadvantage, had caught him in the mood of indiscretion. And to tell the truth, I was not curious to learn what might have driven a young medical student out of London. I have an imagination. I shrugged my shoulders and turned away. Over the taffrail leant a silent black figure, watching the stars. It was Montgomery's strange attendant it looked over its shoulder quickly with my movement, then looked away again. It may seem a little thing to you, perhaps, but it came like a sudden blow to me. The only light near us was a lantern at the wheel. The creature's face was turned for one brief instant out of the dimness of the stern towards this illumination, and I saw that the eyes that glanced at me shone with a pale green light. I did not know then that a reddish luminosity at least is not uncommon in human eyes. The thing came to me as stark inhumanity. That black figure with its eyes of fire struck down through all my adult thoughts and feelings, and for a moment the forgotten horrors of childhood came back to my mind. Then the effect passed as it had come. An uncouth black figure of a man, a figure of no particular import, hung over the taffrail against the starlight, and I found Montgomery was speaking to me. "'I'm thinking of turning in, then,' said he, "'if you've had enough of this.' I answered him incongruously. We went below, and he wished me good-night at the door of my cabin. That night I had some very unpleasant dreams. The waning moon rose late its light struck a glossy white beam across my cabin, and made an ominous shape on the planking by my bunk. Then the staghounds woke, and began howling and baying, so that I dreamt fitfully, and scarcely slept, until the approach of dawn. CHAPTER V. THE MAN WHO HAD NOWHERE TO GO In the early morning—it was the second morning after my recovery and, I believe, the fourth after I was picked up, I awoke through an avenue of tumultuous dreams—dreams of guns and howling mobs—and became sensible of a hoarse shouting above me. I rubbed my eyes and lay listening to the noise, doubting for a little while of my whereabouts. Then came a sudden pattering of bare feet, the sound of heavy objects being thrown about, a violent creaking and the rattling of chains. I heard the swish of the water as the ship was suddenly brought round, and a foamy yellow-green wave flew across the little round window and left it streaming. I jumped into my clothes and went on deck. As I came up the ladder, I saw against the flushed sky-for the sun was just rising-the broad back and red hair of the captain, the puma spinning from a tackle rigged on to the mizzen spanker boom. The poor brute seemed horribly scared and crouched in the bottom of its little cage. "'Overboard with them!' bawled the captain. "'Overboard with them! We'll have a clean ship soon of the whole bilin of them.' He stood in my way, so that I had perforce to tap his shoulder to come on deck. He came round with a start, and staggered back a few paces to stare at me. It needed no expert eye to tell that the man was still drunk.' Hello," said he, stupidly, and then, with a light coming into his eyes, "'Why, it's Mr. Mister!' "'Prendick,' said I. "'Prendick be damned!' said he. "'Shut up! That's your name, Mr. Shut-up!' It was no good answering the brute, but I certainly did not expect his next move. He held out his hand to the gangway by which Montgomery stood talking to a massive grey-haired man in dirty blue flannels who had apparently just come aboard "That way, Mr. blasted shut up, that way!" roared the captain. Montgomery and his companion turned as he spoke. "What do you mean?" I said. "That way, Mr. blasted shut up, that's what I mean, overboard, Mr. shut up and sharp!" "'We're cleaning the ship out, cleaning the whole blessed ship out, and overboard you go.' I stared at him, dumbfounded. Then it occurred to me that it was exactly the thing I wanted. The lost prospect of a journey as sole passenger with this quarrelsome sot was not one to mourn over. I turned towards Montgomery. "'Can't have you,' said Montgomery's companion, concisely. "'You can't have me,' said I, aghast. He had the squarest and most resolute face I ever set eyes upon. "'Look here,' I began, turning to the captain. "'Overboard,' said the captain. "'This ship ain't for beasts and cannibals and worse than beasts any more. Overboard you go, Mr. Shut-up. If they can't have you, you goes overboard. But, anyhow, you go with your friends i've done with this blessed island for evermore amen i've had enough of it but montgomery i appealed he distorted his lower lip and nodded his head hopelessly at the grey-haired man beside him to indicate his powerlessness to help me i'll see to you presently said the captain then began a curious three-cornered altercation Fortunately, I appealed to one and another of the three men, first to the grey-haired man to let me land, and then to the drunken captain to keep me aboard. I even bawled entreaties to the sailors. Montgomery said never a word, only shook his head. "'You're going overboard, I tell you,' was the captain's refrain. "'Law be damned! I'm king here!' At last, I must confess, my voice suddenly broke in the middle of a vigorous threat. I felt a gust of hysterical pedulance, and went aft, and stared dismally at nothing. Meanwhile, the sailors progressed rapidly with the task of unshipping the packages and caged animals. A large launch, with two standing lugs, lay under the lee of the schooner, and into this the strange assortment of goods were swung. I did not then see the hands from the island that were receiving the packages, for the hull of the launch was hidden from me by the side of the schooner. Neither Montgomery nor his companion took the slightest notice of me, but busied themselves in assisting and directing the four or five sailors, who were unloading the goods. The captain went forward interfering rather than assisting. I was alternately despairful and desperate. Once or twice, as I stood waiting there for things to accomplish themselves i could not resist an impulse to laugh at my miserable quandary i felt all the wretcheder for the lack of a breakfast hunger and a lack of blood corpuscles take all the manhood from a man i perceived pretty clearly that i had not the stamina either to resist what the captain chose to do to expel me or to force myself upon montgomery and his companion so i waited passively upon fate And the work of transferring Montgomery's possessions to the launch went on, as if I did not exist. Presently that work was finished, and then came a struggle. I was hauled, resisting weakly enough, to the gangway. Even then I noticed the oddness of the brown faces of the men who were with Montgomery in the launch. But the launch was now fully laden, and was shoved off hastily. A broadening gap of green water appeared under me and I pushed back with all my strength to avoid falling headlong. The hands in the launch shouted derisively, and I heard Montgomery curse at them, and then the captain, the mate, and one of the seamen helping him, ran me aft, towards the stern. The dinghy of the Lady Vane had been towing behind. It was half full of water, had no oars, and was quite unvictualled. I refused to go aboard her, and flung myself full length on the deck. In the end, they swung me into her by a rope, for they had no stern ladder, and then they cut me adrift. I drifted slowly from the schooner. In a kind of stupor, I watched all hands take to the rigging, and slowly but surely she came round to the wind. The sails fluttered, and then bellied out as the wind came into them. I stared at her weather-beaten side, heeling steeply towards me, and then she passed out of my range of view. I did not turn my head to follow her. At first I could scarcely believe what had happened. I crouched in the bottom of the dinghy, stunned and staring blankly at the vacant oily sea. Then I realised that I was in that little hell of mine again, now half-swamped, and looking back over the gunwale, I saw the schooner standing away from me, with the red-haired captain mocking at me over the taffrail, and turning towards the island, saw the launch growing smaller as she approached the beach. Abruptly, the cruelty of this desertion became clear to me. I had no means of reaching the land unless I should chance to drift there. I was still weak, you must remember, from my exposure in the boat. I was empty and very faint or I should have had more heart. But as it was, I suddenly began to sob and weep, as I had never done since I was a little child. The tears ran down my face. In a passion of despair, I struck with my fists at the water in the bottom of the boat, and kicked savagely at the gunwale. I prayed aloud for God to let me die. CHAPTER Six the evil-looking boatmen. But the islanders, seeing that I was really adrift, took pity on me. I drifted very slowly to the eastward, approaching the island slantingly, and presently I saw, with hysterical relief, the launch come round and return towards me. She was heavily laden, and I could make out, as she drew nearer, Montgomery's white-haired, broad-shouldered companion, sitting cramped up with the dogs and several packing-cases in the stern sheets. This individual stared fixedly at me, without moving or speaking. The black-faced cripple was glaring at me as fixedly in the bows near the puma. There were three other men besides, three strange, brutish-looking fellows, at whom the staghounds were snarling savagely. Montgomery, who was steering, brought the boat by me, and rising, caught and fastened my painter to the tiller to tow me, for there was no room aboard. I had recovered from my hysterical phase by this time, and answered his hail as he approached bravely enough. I told him the dinghy was nearly swamped, and he reached me a piggin. I was jerked back as the rope tightened between the boats. For some time I was busy bailing it was not until i had got the water under for the water in the dinghy had been shipped the boat was perfectly sound that i had leisure to look at the people in the launch again the white-haired man i found was still regarding me steadfastly but with an expression as i now fancied of some perplexity when my eyes met his he looked down at the staghound that sat between his knees he was a powerfully built man as i have said with a fine forehead, and rather heavy features, but his eyes had that odd drooping of the skin above the lids, which often comes with advancing ears, and the fall of his heavy mouth at the corners gave him an expression of pugnacious resolution. He talked to Montgomery in a tone too low for me to hear. From him my eyes travelled to his three men, and a strange crew they were. I saw only their faces yet there was something in their faces—I knew not what—that gave me a queer spasm of disgust. I looked steadily at them, and the impression did not pass, though I failed to see what had occasioned it. They seemed to me then to be brown men, but their limbs were oddly swathed in some thin, dirty white stuff, down even to the fingers and feet. I have never seen men so wrapped up before, and women so only in the East. They wore turbans, too, and thereunder peered out their elfin faces at me-faces with protruding lower jaws and bright eyes. They had lank black hair, almost like horsehair, and seemed, as they sat, to exceed in stature any race of men I have seen. The white haired man, who I knew was a good six feet in height, sat a head below any one of the three. I found afterwards that really none were taller than myself. But their bodies were abnormally long, and the thigh part of the leg short and curiously twisted. At any rate, they were an amazingly ugly gang, and over the heads of them, under the forward lug, peered the black face of the man whose eyes were luminous in the dark. As I stared at them, they met my gaze, and then, first one, and then another, turned away from my direct stare, and looked at me in an odd furtive manner it occurred to me that I was perhaps annoying them, and I turned my attention to the island we were approaching. It was low, and covered with thick vegetation, chiefly a kind of palm that was new to me. From one point a thin white thread of vapour rose slantingly to an immense height, and then frayed out like a down feather. We were now within the embrace of a broad bay, flanked on either hand by a low promontory. The beach was of dull grey sand, and sloped steeply up to a ridge, perhaps sixty or seventy feet above the sea-level, and irregularly set with trees and undergrowth. Halfway up was a square enclosure of some greyish stone, which, I found subsequently, was built partly of coral and partly of pumiceous lava. Two thatched roofs peeped from within this enclosure. A man stood awaiting us at the water's edge. I fancied, while we were still far off, that I saw some other and very grotesque-looking creatures scuttle into the bushes upon the slope. But I saw nothing of these as we drew nearer. This man was of a moderate size, and with a black, negroid face. He had a large, almost lipless mouth, extraordinary lank arms, long, thin feet, and bow-legs, and stood with his heavy face thrust forward, staring at us. He was dressed like Montgomery and his white-haired companion, in jacket and trousers of blue serge. As we came still nearer, this individual began to run to and fro on the beach, making the most grotesque movements. At a word of command from Montgomery, the four men in the launch sprang up, and with singularly awkward gestures struck the lugs. Montgomery steered us round, and into a narrow little dock excavated in the beach. Then the man on the beach hastened towards us. This dock, as I call it, was really a mere ditch just long enough at this phase of the tide to take the longboat. I heard the bows ground in the sand, staved the dinghy off the rudder of the big boat with my piggin, and freeing the painter, landed. The three muffled men, with the clumsiest movements, scrambled out upon the sand, and forthwith set to landing the cargo, assisted by the man on the beach. I was struck especially by the curious movements of the legs of the three swathed and bandaged boatmen. Not stiff they were, but distorted in some odd way, almost as if they were jointed in the wrong place. The dogs were still snarling, and strained at their chains after these men, as the white-haired man landed with them. The three big fellows spoke to one another in odd guttural tones, and the man who had waited for us on the beach began chattering to them excitedly, a foreign language, as I fancied, as they laid hands on some bales piled near the stern. Somewhere I had heard such a voice before, and I could not think where. The white-haired man stood, holding in a tumult of six dogs, and bawling orders over their din. Montgomery having unshipped the rudder, landed likewise, and all set to work at unloading. I was too faint, what with my long fast, and the sun beating down on my bare head, to offer any assistance. Presently, the white-haired man seemed to recollect my presence, and came up to me. "'You look,' said he, "'as though you had scarcely breakfasted.' His little eyes were a brilliant black under his heavy brows. I must apologise for that. Now, you are our guest. We must make you comfortable. Though you are uninvited, you know." He looked keenly into my face. "'Montgomery says you are an educated man, Mr. Prendick. Says you know something of science. May I ask what that signifies?' I told him I had spent some years at the Royal College of Science, and had done some researches in biology under Huxley." he raised his eyebrows slightly at that. "'That alters the case a little, Mr. Prendick,' he said, with a trifle more respect in his manner. "'As it happens, we are biologists here. This is a biological station, of a sort.' His eye rested on the men in white, who were busily hauling the puma, on rollers, towards the walled yard. I and Montgomery, at least,' he added. Then. "'When you will be able to get away, I can't say. We're off the track to anywhere. We see a ship once in a twelvemonth or so.' He left me abruptly, and went up the beach past this group, and I think entered the enclosure. The other two men were with Montgomery, erecting a pile of smaller packages on a low-wheeled truck. The llama was still on the launch with the rabbit hutches the staghounds were still lashed to the thwarts. The pile of things completed, all three men laid hold of the truck, and began shoving the ton weight, or so, upon it after the puma. Presently Montgomery left them, and, coming back to me, held out his hand. "'I'm glad,' said he, for my own part. "'That captain was a silly ass. He'd have made things lively for you.' "'It was you,' said I, that saved me again. That depends. You'll find this island an infernally rum place, I promise you. I'd watch my goings carefully, if I were you. He He hesitated, and seemed to alter his mind about what was on his lips. I wish you'd help me with these rabbits, he said. His procedure with the rabbits was singular— I waded in with him, and helped him lug one of the hutches ashore. No sooner was that done than he opened the door of it, and tilting the thing on one end, turned its living contents out on the ground. They fell in a struggling heap one on top of the other. He clapped his hands, and forthwith they went off with that hopping run of theirs, fifteen or twenty of them, I should think, up the beach. Increase and multiply, my friends, said Montgomery replenish the island. Hitherto we've had a certain lack of meat here. As I watched them disappearing, the white-haired man returned, with a brandy-flask and some biscuits. "'Something to go on with, Prendick,' said he, in a far more familiar tone than before. I made no ado, but set to work on the biscuits at once, while the white-haired man helped Montgomery to release about a score more of the rabbits.' Three big hutches, however, went up to the house with the puma. The brandy I did not touch, for I had been an abstainer from my birth. End of part two.